Hello and welcome to The Ballpark. I'm Chris Gilson, the managing editor of the U.S. Center's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. On the 27th of February, 2020, Professor Kathleen Jemison joined the U.S. Center for the event, Russian Hackers, Trolls, and Hashtag Democracy RIP, as part of a Phelan Family Lecture Series. Professor Jemison is the Elizabeth Ware Packard Professor at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania and Director of the Annenberg Public Policy Center. At the event, Professor Jemison discussed what is known about the impact of Russian intervention in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, outlined the contours of the hashtag democracy RIP Russian plans to undercut Hillary Clinton's presidency, and then asked what's next and what we can do about it. All right, I think we'll, we'll go ahead and, and start. I want to welcome everyone um, to the LSE this evening. My name is Peter Trubowitz. I'm a professor in the International Relations Department and the director of the U.S. Center, which is hosting tonight's lecture. Tonight's lecture is part of the Phelan Family Lecture Series, which is made possible by the generosity of the John and Amy Phelan Foundation. It's a great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, Professor Kathleen Jamison, the Elizabeth Ware Packard Professor of Communication and the Director of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Her publications span a, uh, a wide range of um, topics that include uh, over 16 uh, authored books, dozens of articles, book chapters, edited volumes. Her work has been, is widely cited. She's won numerous uh, prestigious awards and prizes from the International Communication Association, the Association of American Publishers, the American Political Science Association, among many others. Her most recent book, Cyber War, How Russian Trackers and Trolls Helped elect a president with Oxford has already won four major prizes, uh, and it was named a Times Literary Supplement Best Book for 2018, and a revised and expanded version is coming out with Oxford pretty soon, right? No. July. July. Her research has been funded by just a host of foundations, MacArthur, Ford, Carnegie, Pew, Robert Woods, Johnson, Packard, the Annenberg Foundation. She's also the co-founder of uh, factcheck.org and the director of the Sunnylands Constitution Project, which uh, I gather um, has produced over 30 award-winning uh, films on the U.S. Constitution for high school students. She's a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the American Philosophical Society, uh, and the American Academy of political and social science, and she was recently awarded the National Academy of Sciences uh, prestigious Public Welfare Medal for, in quotes, her nonpartisan crusade to ensure the integrity of facts in public discourse and development of the science of scientific communication to promote public understanding of complex issues. Amen to that. So that is that's good. Um, Kathleen is here tonight with her husband uh, Bob. We're very happy to have uh, both of them here, and we look forward to getting her thoughts um, about Russian interference in the U.S. elections, especially since the possibility of a repeat performance is very much in the news today. And I was just talking with Kathleen before uh, I saw an NORC poll out today, 
showing that uh, two thirds of Americans uh, think that there's a pretty decent chance that there'll be interference in the um, in the 2020 election. As usual, after the lecture, we'll set time aside for uh, for you to ask questions, and I'll do my level best to get in as many questions as possible. Uh, Professor Jameson will also be signing copies of her book afterwards, after the lecture, uh, outside. Um, and so with all that housekeeping done there, uh, could I just ask you finally, if you haven't already, to just put your phone to uh, silent since this is being recorded. Um, and please join me in welcoming Professor Jameson to the LSE. It's good to be with you. Let me start out by making a disclaimer. This is not a talk about who should normatively have been president. This talk is agnostic on who should have been elected president. It is arguing about the factors at play that determined who was elected president. How many of you are familiar with the US Electoral College? Good. As you know, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by 2.8 million. Hillary Clinton lost the Electoral College for practical purposes decisively, numerically decisively in the Electoral College, but by about 78,000 votes in three key states, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan. I am from Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania in 2016 did not have a paper ballot backup. So if someone were to have gotten into our machines because they planted malware and changed something, we would have no idea. Set that idea aside. <laughs> I'm going to try to make three arguments from the book and introduce some evidence that's coming into the new edition. The first is that the trolls theory that the social media marauders, the cyber warriors who pretended to be US nationals as they marauded around in cyberspace, probably had some effect, but not enough of an effect to have been decisive. And that's a change from the argument in the original book when I said, I don't know if they had enough effect. We didn't have the data as of summer of 2018 about whether they had enough strategically aligned messaging because we didn't have the messaging. The platforms had not disclosed enough for us to know. We still don't have full disclosure from Facebook and Instagram, so we still don't really know with certainty how much of that content was directly electorally relevant. We do have full disclosure from Twitter and our colleagues at the Oxford Project, the uh, research project, the computational research project, have done some of the best work on what is there and what we know about. I'm going to spend a little bit of time telegraphing to that, but not reprising it. So I'm going to argue the trolls theory of the election was sound. I'm going to show you that it was, in fact, aligned with Trump's interests. I'm going to set that aside and take a look at the hackers and argue that the hackers influence was substantial. But the hackers influence was not direct, it was indirect. The hackers would not have accomplished their strategic objectives, which were to change the media agenda of the United States and re-rate the balance of messaging against Hillary Clinton, had it not been for the complicity of our media in the United States, which uncritically aired the content. I will make that argument, that's argument two. If I have time, I'm going to argue that Russian disinformation may have been behind two consequential decisions by James Comey, the decision to make public after an extended statement, his decision that he would not charge or not recommend charging Hillary Clinton in summer of 2016, and his decision in effect to make public the fact that they reopened the investigation into the server because of contents on Anthony Weiner's laptops. So those are the three arguments I'm going to advance. 
First case, I'm going to argue troll impact, probably not substantial enough to have made a difference. Hacking impact, very, very clear and probably substantial enough. And if Russian disinformation influenced Comey at those two points, particularly the second, then my case is extraordinarily strong that Russian trolls and hackers did help elect a president. I use the word help because they didn't pull the levers, press the buttons, and actually tally, tally the votes. Were it not for the consent of an electorate that responded to that messaging with that action, it would not have occurred. Popular versus electoral vote, 78,000, three states, narrowly decided. That's the percent of the vote. Let's visualize it. Now, there are two ways of framing the question. One can ask, did they make enough of a difference that the election was decided by 78,000 votes? If you frame it that way, you're asking, where is the impact prior to the casting of those votes in those states? I cast the argument in the book the first time by saying, was there enough intervention in those three states to have made that difference in three states? And in the process, I miscast my own argument. The evidence in the book actually was national evidence about polling drops that coincided with hacked content. It was not evidence about what was or was not done in three states. The way to frame the question is, was the Russian intrusion taken together, those three sets of interventions, sufficient to have dropped Hillary Clinton 1% in the polls across the states? If we assume that the national impact spreads across the states, a 1% drop at any time prior to the casting of those 78,000 votes makes the election close enough that 78,000 votes are decisive. Communication effects were more likely in 2016 than in prior elections. You had a more susceptible electorate. You had a higher percent of independents. Independents are less reliant to cast a party vote. Now, the political scientists in the room will argue, yes, but they're all basically leaners and they're going to be more likely to cast the vote they lean toward. That is true but independents are still more susceptible to influence than those who reliably say I'm a Democrat or Republican, and we have a higher percent of those than we've had in previous elections. Secondly, we had a higher percent of people disaffected with both, both candidates. So creating imbalances against one candidate in an environment which are disaffected with votes, with both, when you're trying to mobilize or demobilize is a much easier process than trying to change someone's mind. My argument is about mobilization and demobilization. It is not about changing people's mind, except for the shift away from Hillary Clinton to Jill Stein, which is a small part of my argument. Third, we had a higher percent of undecided voters in swing states in the final months of the electorate. Political scientists in the room will tell you that as of the conventions in most elections, we can predict the outcome. The vote is effectively locked in. And once most people decide how to vote, they don't change their vote. And as a result, Essentially, they're impervious to influence because they're going to counter-argue. They're going to counter-argue to defend their vote as you try to influence them for the rest of the election. Communication matters on the margins. There are very few instances in which we have big, sustained communication effects. But if we have an electorate that has a higher percent of, of independents, a higher percent of disaffected voters, a higher percent of undecided voters, particularly in swing states, particularly in the last month, and a higher level of early voting, then in the last month of the election, stimuli that come through a communication channel have a far greater likelihood of creating an impact on the margin in a close election. And as a result, this election is unusual in communication's capacity to influence, not usual. Usually, communication is not going to make a difference. 
I make the argument with Richard Johnson and Michael Hagan in the book, 2000 Election and Foundations of Party Politics, which Cambridge published, that in fact, communication did account for the difference between the popular vote and the Electoral College in 2000 as well. And my assumption that imbalances in messages produce changes on the margin is drawn largely out of that research, which is drawn from a rolling cross-sectional database where we were in the field every single day across the entire election with an independent random sample, and as a result, could look at day-to-day -day variability. And in that environment, what we saw was the advantage went to Gore in the national vote, hence the non-battleground states, because in news, Gore was in news, in national news, when we still had large national news audiences, virtually every night for the last week, hammering Bush on the grounds that he would shortchange Social Security with his so-called private Social Security accounts, called privatization. Bush called them personal savings accounts. Gore called them privatization, called it privatization. And Gore gained the message imbalance because he was unrebutted by Bush whose past DUI conviction from his youth had been made public and he did not want to answer questions in national news and that imbalance in our rolling cross-section tips the popular vote decisively toward Gore. Meantime, Gore was out of advertising money for reasons we could talk about later. He didn't have the money Bush had in the closing weeks. And as a result, he could not blunt the counterattack by Bush in the battleground done in advertising where Bush argued, I'm not going to hurt Social Security, it's going to be just fine. We were able to show, because Battleground had ads, non-Battleground didn't, they both had the effects of news, that there was a national effect of news that benefited Gore, that there was a Battleground effect of advertising that affected Bush, and message imbalances predicted that. We did that by marrying a complete advertising data set in from radio, television, and cable in order to make the predictions and the regressions. So in this environment, and in that environment, we had a susceptible electorate. Our election is decided in a very close contest. So did the Russians influence? I say probably. I don't say conclusively because we just simply don't have the social science on the ground to make the tight connection that one would have to make to say that message did that to those audience members. So my case is going to be suggestive. It is not going to be conclusive. So how did they influence? Trolls, hackers, disinformation, trolls. We have vulnerabilities inherent inside our social media structure. You know about communication, you know these. You can obscure identity, you can aggregate, you can agitate, you can amplify, and you can target. Those are capacities which, that make it possible for someone who's sitting in St. Petersburg to influence somebody in the United States who thinks they're being communicated to by someone like them. It also encourages an environment in which fear appeals to bigotry, appeals to hatred, have particular resonance. They're more likely to circulate. It also occurs in an environment in which we're susceptible to social pressures in a way that we were not in traditional media, as likes aggregate, often driven by bots, and as we share quickly without being analytic about the content to which we are exposed. And in the process, we endorse it. The source becomes us, not the pseudonymous troll pretending to be the housewife from Florida. The disinformation spanned the networks. Some troll accounts outperformed legitimate ones. Blacktivist outperformed Black Lives Matter. At 10 underscore GOP outperformed the actual Tennessee Republican account. There's an argument that says the prime purpose of the Russians was roiling discontent. There clearly was a purpose to royal discontent. And I would argue that that purpose is not incompatible with defeating Hillary Clinton. 
Because if you royal discontent, if you play on all of the tensions inside the United States and magnify them, I would argue that redounds against the president of the United States, Barack Obama, and against his heir apparent, who is arguing that she would continue his legacy, his secretary of state, Hillary Clinton. This is what the roiling discontent looks like. Now you know why I'm not reading it. They targeted the voters of interest to Trump, evangelicals and veterans. A Republican nominee is highly likely to get the vote of an evangelical Christian or a white conservative Catholic if that person votes. The question is, will that person vote? A Republican nominee is highly likely to get the vote of a military, a person who's been in the military, a person who's in a military household, a veteran, if that person votes. The question is, will that person vote? As of August, Donald Trump did not have the percent of the evangelical Christian community and community of white Catholics. And I'm just going to telegraph that as evangelicals for the sake of simplicity. At the point, August he did not have the numbers he needed to win the Electoral College. As of August, he did not have the numbers of veterans and military households. It's not that they were going to vote for someone else. They highly were not likely to. That's an oddly phrased sentence. They were highly unlikely to. What happened between August and election is he mobilized them up to the historic levels of a Republican nominee. Why were they disaffected with Donald Trump? Let's first think about the evangelical community. Donald Trump, thrice married. Donald Trump, engaging in extramarital affairs while he was married and the tabloids were reporting it. Donald Trump said vulgar things about his daughter on Howard Stern. Donald Trump had been pro-choice. Donald Trump thinks that the appropriate way to cite the, the book is to say 2 Corinthians, not 2 Corinthians. Donald Trump says he doesn't think he needs forgiveness, so he hasn't asked for forgiveness. And the question is, have you asked for forgiveness of God? A lot of telegraphy there is saying, I'm not allied with your community in the traditional ways that a Republican nominee signals alliance. Military households. John McCain isn't Donald Trump's kind of hero. He got captured. Comments about a gold star family. Three deferments. Multiple deferments. One of them for what I would call a transient bone spur. Not a necessary alliance. And did not serve in the military has no elected experience, so there is no record of whether he supported or opposed on those issues. There aren't votes that you can turn to. So the first challenge for Donald Trump is he has to mobilize those constituencies up to the historic level that a Republican nominee needs in order to be elected. And he's not there as of August. He is there as of November. So something mobilized up. Now you can say, well, they're naturally going to go to Trump, so you'd expect them to go there. And you're right. If they're going to go someplace, they're going to go there. The question is, are they going to vote at historic levels? And if there's a natural glide path where everything after August makes it clear that he's going to become president of the United States and serve the needs of Republicans for the evangelical vote, ask what the Access Hollywood does, Access Hollywood tape does to that vote. What it does is tanks him among white Catholics. We know that, white conservative Catholics, we know that. We don't have good polling data from that immediate post-access Hollywood tape about the evangelical community, but we know there's this big revelation that hurts in the middle of what should be a glide path toward getting to his mobilization. The black vote. No reasonable person thinks that the African-American vote is going to mobilize to the, the level that it mobilized for Barack Obama. And Hillary Clinton doesn't need it to, but she's got to get it up to the historic levels. She doesn't. 
You have the lowest level of voting by this community than we've had in 20 years in 2016. That vote demobilized and Trump needed that to happen too. He needed to mobilize evangelicals. He needed to mobilize military families and households and veterans. He needed to demobilize the black vote. And then finally, shifting anybody you could who might otherwise cast a vote for Hillary Clinton over to Jill Stein. And that's particularly an appeal to young liberals and Sanders supporters. And here the hack content becomes really important because the hack content offers evidence after evidence to the Sanders supporters that Hillary Clinton ought not to be their candidate. If by Hillary Clinton, you mean those people in the Democratic National Committee who are standing with Hillary Clinton overall. So the first dump of hacked content is strategically released right before the Democratic Convention in order to say to Sanders' young supporters, they were in the tank. The DNC was in the tank for Hillary Clinton. As a result, you should not support her. Mobilized evangelicals, I'm just going to be telegraphic to show you that there's troll evidence they were strategically aligned with the need. Remember, the accounts have to find you, gather you, before they can appeal to you. So much of this is finding you. By you're indicating you like, you get aggregated. And by the way, saying that Trump is pro-choice and Hillary, Trump is pro-choice in his early years, pro-life in his later years hurts Trump. Saying Trump is pro-life now, Hillary Clinton is pro-choice now, advantages Trump. So make pro-life salient. You can make the Trump appeal to the current difference. That statement is taken out of context from the Benghazi hearings. That should say mobilizing veterans, by the way, not mobilizing evangelicals. So they targeted the voters they needed, demobilizing blacks. I'm just going to let you read because I know you read more rapidly than I talk. This alleges that Bill Clinton had a relationship with a black prostitute producing an illegitimate black child. There's no difference between the two. Don't vote. Does anybody recognize the person who's holding the sign? Who is he? Yeah, popular culture figure who had a get out the vote drive. So this image is created, fabricated, in order to suggest that this person who's got the get out the vote drive, who is an icon in the popular culture, who is a person of color, tweet your vote. You can't tweet your vote. Well, you can, but it won't count. <laughs> Same thing here. This is something that actually aired. This is not troll content. This is a, aired an issue ad that is produced inside the United States. There is so much at stake in this election, and that's why I'm supporting Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton is honest and trustworthy, and can we cut? Cut. What's the problem? I can't say these words. What do you mean? I just don't believe what I'm saying. Okay, but you're an actress. I'm not that good of an actress. Honest and trustworthy. Give me a break. Make America number one is responsible for the content of this advertising. That ad was sponsored by Defeat Crooked Hillary Pack, which is backed by Steve Bannon championing billionaire Robert Mercer. Breitbart, which is run by Bannon, featured the same still photo from the video. The Russian troll account at 10 underscore GOP shared the ad. Their tweet was retweeted by Michael Flynn. They're amplifying content inside the existing conservative ecosphere. Stein, I'm going to let you read the Stein appeal. You see the appeal to Sanders supporters. If you search RT in the Sputnik archives, RT, formerly Russia Today, not, or not retweet, these are Russian propaganda outlets, you'll find more than 100 stories both on-air and online friendly to Stein and the Green Party. Here's a direct appeal from one of the trolls. Here's who Jill Stein is. That's Michael Flynn seated next to Vladimir Putin. You've seen that because 
when he was indicted and then convicted, you saw the picture. Here's Jill Sine sitting in the front row. This is the 10th anniversary of RT, formerly known as Russia Today. You can find it in most hotel rooms in most major cities. You can find it on the Comcast cable stations in the United States. So I can actually watch RT in my living room if I would like. The role of the hackers plus the US press. Argument two, the Russian hacking strategy. Hack private information, set up sites hosting it. That's where you get DC leaks. Fake persona I created to draw attention to the hacked account. That's the troll interface to the hacking. Social media accounts are created to amplify news reports of the hacked content. You just saw an instance of that. Peer groups and networks share the hacked content and news media publish it. In the process, the trolls try to get the hacked content to trend. We know that reporters follow trending as an indicator of newsworthiness. And as a result, an effect of the troll that we can act, trolls that we can actually see is the pushing of content to trend and the resulting effect inside the mainstream media. You know this because you study communication. The press in the United States, and I assume not in Great Britain, is drawn to scandal, <laughs> revelations and suspense, appearance versus reality, the simplifying narrative, and a strategy and tactics not, not substantive frame. What that means is when hacked content appears, the substance of it, the issue-based substance of it, is not going to be the focus of our coverage. So you could learn by reading the hacked segments from the, the Clinton speeches, which were gotten from a memo by a Clinton aide who had identified all of them and sent them to Clinton High Command saying, these could be problematic for us, which means we can actually read the context of them because he includes the full context of them. That hacked content comes into a media structure in which the tactical significance of it is going to be far more important than what does it actually reveal about her positions. You can learn a lot from the hacked speeches, by the way. You could write a great article about where she actually stood on trade, where she actually stood on immigration. And you'd be greatly surprised because it's exactly where she said she stood when she made the same kinds of speeches in public. Failures of the press. Reporters fail to source the content, the hacked content, to the Russians or to Julian Assange. Instead, they sourced it to WikiLeaks. They downplayed or ignored the October 7th confirmation that the Russians were behind the hacking. This is because on October 7th, first you had the confirmation from our Office of the Director of National Intelligence and head of the director, the head director of Homeland Security, Department of Homeland Security, that the Russians were behind the hacking. You then had the release of the Access Hollywood tape. David Farenthold breaks the story, Washington Post. Then within an hour, you've got the first hacked dump by Assange. That's the Podesta hack. That's where the speech segments come from. In that environment, the news media has two stories that hurt Trump and one story that potentially could hurt Clinton, depending on whether or not you take time to actually read most of that content. Instead of tying the first narrative, the Russians were the did the hacking, to the Podesta hack, they drop it from the narrative. And the narrative becomes an equivalence frame in which what you have is, will this hurt Trump more than it hurts Clinton? That's the tactical frame. Do they both say some things in public and another in private? That is, does Donald Trump actually engage in this behavior and then say it's locker room banter? Does she actually say in speeches things that are different than what she says in public? So that's the public-private framing. And how much of a scandal is this for both of them and what's it going to do to their electoral prospects? In the process, we lose the fact that the Russians did it. If you want to do a search to find out how to find hacked content, the way you do it is you search WikiLeaks because the sentences in the press about the hacked content tag to WikiLeaks. You rarely see Russian stolen. You rarely see illegally gotten. Reporters failed to note the lack of independent verification. 
After the fact, it's reasonable to say that the hacked content was largely accurate. There are few allegations about it being distorted, but largely accurate. Even if reporters knew that while it was being released, and they didn't, they should have honored the journalistic norm to say they hadn't independently corroborated it. They largely let that go to the wayside when the Clinton campaign decided not to point to anything that was inaccurate. And I would argue that's an important journalistic lapse, not so much for what it didn't tell us, although that was important, but because if you are the reporter and you are saying to yourself, I'm writing the sentence that I'm going to read on air, or I'm formulating the sentence in my brain, and it says, Russian gotten illegally hacked, cannot be independently verified, I'm going to look at it more carefully and not be as likely to take it out of context. Hacked content was not subject to tests of newsworthiness. Most of the hacked stories do not stand up well in retrospect. Hacked content altered the media agenda, central claim for me. And at key moments, reporters took hacked content out of context. Let's look at hacked content altered the media agenda. Now remember, I'm making two arguments. Message imbalance and agenda setting tied to narrowing the consideration on which you vote to increase the likelihood you're voting on matters hostile to Hillary Clinton shape votes on the margin in a close election. So if I can't establish the agenda is altered, my argument is gone. Headlines for WikiLeaks by outlets, extensive use in conservative media, but it's in the rest of the places as well. And remember, Trump has to mobilize conservatives, so extensive use helping mobilizing conservative media is a Russian effect. Access Hollywood tape wipes out of the search structure. WikiLeaks persists because Assange keeps dropping new tranches of hacked materials on a regular basis. He keeps spiking the newsworthiness. How did the press respond? This is David Leonhardt. The overhyped coverage of the hacked emails was the media's worst mistake in 2016, one surely to be repeated if not properly understood. This is Amy Chozik, also New York Times. I didn't argue that it appeared the emails were stolen by a hostile foreign government that had staged an attack on our electoral system. I didn't push to hold off on publishing them until we could have a less hairy discussion. I didn't raise the possibility we'd become puppets in Putin's shadowy campaign. I chose the byline. Those are two self-reflective journalists. I agree with their assessments. How did the press respond? This is the Pulitzer Prize winning team of Lipton, Sanger, and Shane. Every major publication, including the Times, published multiple stories citing the DNC and Podesta emails posted by WikiLeaks becoming a de facto instrument of Russian intelligence. And if you doubt that they cited WikiLeaks instead of Russian hacked stolen content, this Pulitzer Prize winning team is sourcing it to WikiLeaks in this self-reflective news piece. The effects. Hillary Clinton's qualification to be president, perceived qualification to be president, drops at a statistically significant level during the time in which the hack content is in the media at its highest point. This is in our survey data, uh, two cross-sectional surveys. And she loses the advantage that she had on the positive traits, except for temperament to be president. Temperament to be president is the one place in which she has the message advantage because her ads are focusing almost exclusively on that attack on Donald Trump. Failures of the press. At key moments, reporters took hacked content out of context. Julian Assange set the agenda for the news media by featuring these two excerpts, public position, private position, and hemispheric common market, open trade, open borders. Notice in the second, he actually has a comma there. Now, if you go down to the bottom that I have yellowed for you, you'll see there is more to those sentences and they are in the hacked content but he framed with his headlines and he framed effectively. This is happening on an extremely busy weekend. They're going through pages after page after page after page of speech content. 
the framing potentially has an effect. They're going to feature those things and they're going to feature them out of context. Here's what she actually said in the first of those instances. You just have to figure out, getting back to that word balance, how to balance the public and private efforts that are necessary to be successful politically, and that's just not a comment about today. If you saw the movie Lincoln and how he's maneuvering and working to get the 13th Amendment passed, and he called one of my favorite predecessors, Secretary Seward, who had been governor and senator from New York, ran against Lincoln for president. He told Seward, I need your help to get this done. But if everybody's watching, you know, all the backroom discussions and the deals, you know, then people get a little nervous to say the least. So you need a public and a private position. She did not stand up in front of a bank. This is the National Multi-Housing Council and say, I'm going to gut Dodd-Frank, but don't tell anybody. This was not a statement about her positions on issues. It was a statement in the context of a discussion of a film by Steven Spielberg about Lincoln. Here's the second debate. This question involves WikiLeaks release of purported excerpts of Secretary Clinton's paid speeches, which she has refused to release. And one line in particular in which you, Secretary Clinton, purportedly say you need both a public and private position on certain issues. So two from Virginia asks, is it okay for politicians to be two-faced? Is it acceptable for a politician to have a private stance on issues? She then says, I was talking about Lincoln. Donald Trump says now she's lying about Lincoln. Second statement, this is ABC. The CAC content is released the 7th. This is Sunday the 9th. So it's released on Friday the 7th. This is Sunday the 9th. ABC includes the whole sentence. My dream is a hemispheric common market, comma, with open trade and open borders, comma. That's where the WikiLeaks forecast ended. The rest of the sentence says, sometime in the future with energy that is as green and sustainable as we can get it, powering growth and opportunity for every person in the hemisphere. Future tense about the hemisphere and talking about energy. This is what happens on Face the Nation. Notice the period. So what happens on CNN? Well, they put the ellipses in, but you don't know what happened after. This is Fox. Notice the ellipses. And here's something from a completely different page. It is not consecutive, and it's not the rest of the sentence. So as of the 9th, the mainstream press is taking this out of context. And I consider Chris Wallace on Fox News mainstream press. You've got major print outlets doing the same thing. The consistency of doing it is extraordinarily high. So I'm not surprised when in the third debate, which doesn't happen until the 19th, that you hear this. The speech you gave to a Brazilian bank for which you were paid $225,000, we've learned from the WikiLeaks that you said this, and I want to quote, my dream is a hemispheric common market with open trade and open borders. So is that your dream, open borders? In fact, Compare debate viewers to non-debate viewers in the presence of controls. And after each of the two debates, the belief that she says one thing in public, another thing in private increases. And with the increase, you've got a decreased likelihood of voting for Hillary Clinton. Role of disinformation, argument three. Did it affect the Comey October 28th decision? In six days between the reopening and closing of the Comey investigation, the New York Times ran as many cover stories about Hillary Clinton's emails as they did about all the policy issues combined in the 69 days leading up to the election. The strongest, clearest agenda setting effect in the election occurs during this period. It is stronger than the hacking effect that I just showed you in October. It looks like this. This is Tom Patterson's data from Harvard. Did the Russians force Comey's hand? 
In the midst of the 2016 presidential primary season, the FBI received what was described as a Russian intelligence document claiming a tacit understanding between the Clinton campaign and the Justice Department over the inquiry into whether she intentionally revealed classified information through her use of a private email server. What does it mean FBI received what was described as Russian intelligence document? This is potentially the Russians taking advantage of the fact that the released hacked content had been accurate to hold content that is inaccurate with the possibility that if it's released, it will be perceived to be accurate because the press is not challenging the accuracy of anything nor saying it has not been independently verified. In fact, it's just attributing it to WikiLeaks as if that is a legitimate source. Subsequent information suggests that another country's government actually got access to this material and got it to the FBI. Current and former officials have said Comey relied on that document in making his July decision to announce on his own without Justice Department involved, but the investigation was over. This is in summer. He feared that if Lynch announced no charges against Clinton and then the secret document leaked, the legitimacy of the entire case would be questioned. This is a really strong piece of evidence that affected the July decision. Now, my argument is, if it affected the decision in July, it affected the decision in October, because nothing has changed about its capacity to create questions about the independence of the Justice Department. This is a picture of Comey in July. This is Comey testifying, explaining the factors at play in July. The normal way to do it, we'd have the Department of Justice announce it. And I struggled as we got closer to the end of it with the, a number of things that had gone on, some of which I can't talk about yet, that made me worry that the department leadership could not credibly complete the investigation and decline prosecution without grievous damage to the American people's confidence in the, in the justice system. Well, look at this way. Apparently, the FBI director intervened in the elections in July 2016 based on a fake email generated by the Russians from the Democrats to the Department of Justice trying to shut down the email investigation of Clinton. The story dominated news coverage for the better part of a week, drowning out other headlines. This is Nate Silver. That's the change in net popularity during this time. That's this drop in support big picture. Let's look at all voters. 60% decided before September, 12% decided in September, 12% decided in October, 8% decided in the last week, 8% decided in the last few days. Majority of those who decided in or after September voted for Trump. Among those voters in battleground states who decided in the last few days, the majority voted Trump over Clinton. But I would argue the effect was already baked in before that because she'd lost more than 1% in the polls as a result of the hacked content in October and separately as a result of the Comey investigation made public. If the hacked content accounts for her drop and she dropped from double digits into single digits during that October period or the 1% to 3% drop during Comey, just give me 1% in either of those two places. And I don't need any trolls to say that the Russians, trolls and hackers, but hackers, helped elect a president. The trolls theory of the election was sound. Special counsel <laughs> Mueller characterized the effort as sweeping and systematic. Here are the numbers on the trolls, hackers, and there's the argument, altered two debates, perception of public private changes, change predicts reduced intention to vote, perception of qualification to be president drops. She loses her advantage on traits. And then there's a fourth piece of the plan. 
They didn't expect to elect Donald Trump or to help elect Donald Trump. They were actually planning to destabilize the presidency of Hillary Clinton. That was the democracy RIP plan. Here's some preliminary evidence about what it looked like. First, we know they targeted election systems in all 50 states. The question is why? Did they do it to alter votes? And if so, did they actually alter votes inside the election system? As far as we know, they didn't. The question is, could we know if they did? But the fact that they are there, they may have wanted us to find them there in order to suggest that the election process itself had somehow been tampered with. The question is, did they expect that we would find that they were the ones there as opposed to finding that someone was there? They also engaged in research as well as direct visits to election websites and networks in the majority of U.S. states. FBI and DHS, Department of Homeland Security, assessed the Russian government's cyber actors probably conducted research and reconnaissance against all the United States election networks leading up to 2016. Worry for the next election. I'll have our secretaries of state hacker-proofed, intrusion-proofed our electoral structure. Amid the election charges, the charges of the election was going to be rigged, the Russians asked to monitor our voting process. Now, part of that is just poking at the United States. We sent Jimmy Carter around the world to monitor elections. Well, let's monitor the U.S. elections since they're charging that they're going to be rigged. But there's another more insidious possibility. And that's the insidious possibility that in an apparent move to embarrass the United States over Donald Trump's claim of a rigged presidential election, Russia sought to send monitors to U.S. polling stations. And hold that thought for a moment because I dropped a slide. If you walk into a voting booth and it's one of the electronic systems in the United States and you've got a flash drive, you have the possibility of implanting malware. Were they planning to do it or was just this just an attempt to poke at the United States because we like to send election monitors around? I don't know, but it's at least a possibility. We also have the trolls reinforcing the idea that the electoral process is broken and the electoral process is rigged. And these are some examples of that. And this is a drumbeat up to the election. So if you want to delegitimize the vote at the end, you need a drumbeat to say, it was going wrong, it was going wrong, we've got the evidence. The trolls warned about and spread allegations of fraud and vote rigging. And they actually made it onto the NBC News site. Now imagine if on election night, the election had been cited by 78,000 votes and Hillary Clinton were the winner. And now what you had was tampering inside the voting machines this ongoing drumbeat that the election was being rigged for Hillary Clinton, and you already have gotten into the NBC News feed saying, and here's an instance of it, that's our friend at 10 GOP tweeting that out. What's next? Here's election 2020. Heads of government agencies, including FBI, Department of Justice, National Security Administration Agency, warned in a joint security statement Tuesday that foreign actors would seek to interfere in the 2020 election. Russia, China, Iran, and other foreign malicious actors all will seek to interfere in the voting process or influence voter perceptions. We should take our lessons from 2016 as a way of hardening our defenses against 2020, not simply in the United States, but around the world. Thank you. Well, thank you for that. I mean, uh, thank you for that optimistic presentation. <laughs> right. I mean, it. You make a compelling case, and I suppose the one and a very damning case, it seems to me, of the media and mainstream media. I'm curious about the mainstream media's response to this, to what you've argued, and um, you know, I mean, and this has certainly 
played out like in the New Yorker has picked this up and because if there's any chance of avoiding some of yeah. this right in 2020 it's really going to lie I mean the responsibility is with the mainstream media to properly source and so forth you have I mean so where what's your view of that and what what's the response been like and do you have you do you have any sense that the media is at all mainstream media is all self-reflective about on this first i i laid this case out not to to talk about all the ways in which the platforms have and can and should change there's a whole we, we need to make sure the platforms are changing in ways that make it highly unlikely we're going to have the same kinds of interventions again but I, I haven't focused that here because i don't think the trolls accomplished their objective um and because i don't have the time the reason that middle part of the lecture is set up to be that specific is it's trying to say these are the changes you need to make you know you need to say that i'm going to independently verify or say that i have not you're going to source we've known since aristotle that people judge messages by source the motive of people is really important in judging whether you accept the message now it becomes really complicated when the message is something ostensibly gotten from a candidate so you could treat it as Hillary Clinton is the source. Actually, she wasn't hacked. These are her people. Her people were the source under that scenario. Mm -hmm. Or say that part of that source stream is, how did that get to you? Right. And what I'm arguing is it is relevant in judging the integrity of that in the absence of independent verification to know that it's Russia and then Julian Assange and that Russia has a motive and that Julian Assange does too, because Julian Assange is on the record opposing Hillary Clinton's candidacy. So Julian Assange is not a neutral player. And once you say that, you become more conscious of the extent to which Julian Assange is being strategic. He is not releasing in the order that these things appeared in real time. So you're not seeing October emails and then November emails, you know, then December emails, January emails. You're seeing things strategically dropped. The content that will mobilize, demobilize the Sanders supporters dropped right before the Democratic Convention. Podesta emails dropped right after the Access Hollywood tape. The Donna Brazil information, Donna Brazil providing questions, dropped in the electoral period as you're starting to get the high levels of, of early voting. So there's strategic move. In the very last week, there's a drop of information about the Clinton Foundation trying to push that back into news, and it did get some news traction. Now, those aren't being dropped consecutively, and they weren't dropped as one big package, in which case the press could have made its own judgment across time. So they don't know what they're getting, and importantly, they don't know what they're not getting. Mm -hmm. By virtue of having to disclose that as part of your news regimen, you will ask yourself, am I being manipulated in some way? And it'll raise the awareness of the question, is this honestly newsworthy? Notice I'm not saying it shouldn't be covered. I mean, if, if we say nothing that's leaked and nothing that's hacked should ever be covered, we're going to lose a lot of government accountability. So apart from the fact that it's illegal, set that aside. If the press gets it, I believe the press needs to have a newsworthiness threshold, a sourcing threshold, an independent verification threshold, and make extraordinarily sure that it's keeping things in context, not just in the context provided by the hacked material, but the context of what else can be known in relationship to it. And that's an attempt to say to newsrooms, please make sure that if this happens again, you've got some, you've got some, some principles in place. Now, to directly answer your question, for about the first year and a half as I talked about the book, Reporters were really eager to talk about trolls. They were treating the hack content as if it was presumed to be newsworthy and have news value, not that it was suspect. Now, notice the strongest argument I'm making is it was taken out of context. So you could say, well, no, we didn't have to say it was the Russians. So you, you, you make some case about that in the rush of things. You can't say you get to take things out of context. 
uh, the early interviews that I did with mainstream news and the early broadcast segments, I was never asked specifically about the two reporters who took things out of context in the debates. And in one interview where I was asked about it, it didn't get into the final interview. Why? Well, it makes some sense to me. First, these are very fine reporters. I have enormous respect for Martha Raddatz and Chris Wallace. The whole culture was saying this is what was said. That somebody didn't check on their staff, I do not think is a huge you know, journalistic blot on their reputation. They should have caught it. They didn't. Their overall record is extraordinarily fine. But in that context, the journalistic establishment was, to me, protecting its own against the most damaging charge. And so the, the question is, have they paid enough attention to that to never do it again? Mm. I actually have every reason to believe that they read the book, talked about the book, read those sections, and in fact are highly aware that they're there. That's a high note. Um, so we're going to open it up to questions. Uh, we'll take the question in the center right there. So just briefly introduce yourself. Uh, Paul McGrail, Peace News. Uh, Professor Jameson, you, you've mentioned Assange, Julian Assange, quite often. And as you must know, the, his extradition um, hearing is going on this week. Can you, can, can you say a few words about what you believe? Uh, the, is there a difference between WikiLeaks and Assange? And what is Assange's message, or agenda, agenda? And were he to be extradited to the US, would a, a great deal come out regarding uh, what, what actually occurred in 2017? I don't know the answer to most of your questions. I mean, what, what I am able to know is what you are able to know. It is what's in the public record. What I can say is that WikiLeaks had a web presence that was substantial. It's archiving and it's making things searchable, increased the likelihood that they were going to be used. All of those things increased or were drawn on capacities that he developed in the past in journalistic partnerships with some of our best news organizations, including some in the United States and some in Great Britain. So I understand why journalists initially thought WikiLeaks is something they should trust. Some of these major organizations had partnered with WikiLeaks to disclose things like the Guantanamo papers, you know, things that I applaud having public access to, well, that were vetted. Um, and so the, to the extent that WikiLeaks looked as if it was this journalistic thing that was kind of on the edge of everybody's boundaries, but was holding people accountable, it gained a kind of legitimacy, I believe, even as things were happening, such as private information that should never have been disclosed was getting into public as a result of some of the th these things. And I think that's part of what's at issue right now inside the court system here. Um, by the way, the same thing happened when the, the uh, WikiLeaks Assange-based Russian stolen content got into the US because the private uh, phone numbers of Clinton donors were disclosed. Clinton's private phone number was disclosed. So Clinton started getting vile phone calls. Um, so the, you know, not being careful to pull back those kinds of things um, and some things that have national security implications. It was the standard charge against Assange before this, this exchange in 2016. So I can tell you all that. I can tell you that, I, that up to that point, I know why our press regarded Assange the way they did. They worked with him. They had some problems with him, but they'd worked with him. Major news organizations had some of them are broken with him too. They knew about his tendency to have things out there that they thought were problematic after the fact. So that critique is already out there. But I don't think they had in their repertoire of Assange behavior, that is their menu of expectations about Assange, that he would strategically be releasing things and manipulating them in the process. 
Um, and I don't think they shifted quickly enough once they realized that he had publicly come out against Hillary Clinton, at which point their whole framing of him should have changed. But as to your questions about the specifics of how he works, I don't know. Hi, I'm Jackie Mainimer. I'm okay. a fourth year PhD student in the Department of International Relations, and I have two questions, but one of them is short. Um, <laughs> firstly, you discussed sort of how the, the factor, the media factor might be different this time around in 2020, that the media might be more reflected, uh, reflective. I'm wondering whether the other factors that you're talking about, the level of independent voters, um, discontents with, I guess, uh, candidates, that's the primary, uh, the Democratic candidate is still being decided, but whether to what extent that exists for 2020, since um, we're not, you know, as close as some of the stuff that you were looking at, but we're not too far away. And the second thing they want to ask has to do with the um, allegations that there's been interference to benefit the Bernie Sanders campaign. And you've made uh, the claim that for the 2016 election, it wasn't so much that they wanted to get Trump elected, but they wanted to foment this kind of democratic unrest, unease, distrust. And I'm wondering, is this the same thing this time around, um, this time in support of Bernie for, for that reason, just to generally um, cause chaos and this type of allegations, or if this is trying to benefit Trump in some way that they think that Bernie Sanders might be the candidate that's least likely to win against Trump. Um, so those yeah, Just the fact that we're asking that question means they've succeeded. So I think you know, to the extent that the United States system can be you know, drawn into controversies that are problematic for people, um, then Putin should be smiling. Um, I don't know what they're trying to do. I mean, the, the, you can have a whole possible range of things that they're trying to do. They might be trying to do things that aren't mutually exclusive. Um, but what I, I think we can say is that we should be looking everywhere, not in only one specific place. So, and we should not assume that the intelligence agencies have the same level of certainty about the claims that were supposedly made to a House committee, I believe it was last week, that they had when they issued a public statement and expressed the high level of confidence or intermediate level of confidence that they did about the statement. So my, I know only what you know, I know only is in the public record. And what is in the public record is a, a third iteration of something that happened in a private setting, not the intelligence agency putting their reputation on the line with a level of confidence assessment attached to it, and as a result, standing by something. So my position on this right now is I don't know what they said to that committee. We've got various statements about what they did and did not say. I'm astonished if they actually told the committee something, having not told the President of the United States the same thing. He says they haven't. Uh, this, you know, the, what, what they did say about Sanders is in dispute. Um, I'm putting all this for the moment into, if I were Vladimir Putin, I'd, I'd be really pleased. Now for susceptible susceptibility, let's wait and see what you've got for the end of the, the democratic nominating process. We are far more polarized now, and we have far more hardened support for Donald Trump now than we did in 2016. The number of people holding their nose and supporting Donald Trump is very low relative to where it was in 2016. So the first part is that isn't in the equation anymore. The question is what's going to happen on the democratic side? and we don't know. I mean, we, ask me again in four months. Um, I hope we don't get into a situation in which you have large numbers of voters disaffected with the two likely, the two nominees, who one of whom is likely to be president of the United States, because that speaks really poorly for our system. I mean, whatever you think about Donald Trump, it is better to have people voting for Donald Trump than holding their nose and voting against someone else. 
It's just a different relationship between the vote and governance. So if people look at what he's done and approve of what he's done and they vote for Donald Trump, that's actually the way our system is supposed to work. And now the question is, how is it going to work on the Democratic side? Um, I don't think we're going to have the same level of undecideds. Um, I, I think we're going to have an electorate that's going to harden in early, but that's just a guess, in which case I don't think you're going to see the possibility of these kinds of communication effects. Um, if you want a larger guess about the election, tell me where the economy is. I'll give you a better guess, but it would yeah. just be a guess, and I'm not good at that. It'll harden in irrespective of who the Democratic candidate yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Because it's just so polarized. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Peter. Yeah, hi, I'm Tom Renzo. I work at the uh, Institute for Global Affairs at the um, had I know, hi. Hi, I can see. Um, I had two questions. Um, the first one, um, a lot of the speculation in the, in the community of people who've been following this story has been whether the uh, sort of Republican Party managed to get any of their polling data and strategy to the Russians. And one of the big revelations in the Mueller reports was that Manafort was meeting with Konstantin Kalimnik, who's you know, uh, a mediator to, to various Russian uh, security forces, um, and they were meeting and things were being handed over. We don't know what. Yeah, I think Mueller said probably polling data, I'm not sure. My question, I know just looking at the other end, do you see any of the troll activity targeting the specific states? So I know NYU did some look to the Twitter data and didn't seem to be targeting those states. Yeah. But what about Facebook ads? Did Facebook sort of reveal the targeting parameters? Do we know anything about that? Well, we, we do know that there were intense Russian <coughs> troll-based efforts in Florida um, because they were, they were staging events, some of which got back onto web pages and got featured in web pages. We know that the uh, cage with the Hillary Clinton impersonator, and so now, you know, now we, we can geolocate this, uh, happened in Florida. Uh, the thing that intrigues me about the, we know that they called for a, a rally of coal miners uh, in Pennsylvania and asked for it in downtown Philadelphia, which is a highly unlikely place to find coal miners. But we also know that they were paying attention to their stream. I mean, you're seeing the learning curve as you watch across time, because as they try to target to get to the coal miners in Pennsylvania, first they try to get this rally to happen in downtown Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, that didn't happen. But then they begin to start to move to get it geographically proximate to where you actually will find some coal miners. So there's not a static troll environment. You see learning across this. You see the effects of people liking and responding to messages and messages being refined across time. So you see the platforms doing what platforms do, and you see them learning from the platforms. But let me speak specifically to the Manafort, uh, Constantine Klimnik claim, because it answers the other part of your question as well. I believe what we know from the Mueller report is that Manafort shared data. Um, I believe we know that there's some polling in that process, but also that he indicates states that were of interest. And one of the states that were of interest to the Trump campaign was not in the mass media discussion as being of interest. That was Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And the trolls were trying to organize a rally in Minnesota. So the question is, were the trolls trying to organize a rally in Minnesota because they had that information? Or were they capitalizing the fact that there was the death of a person of color at the hands of a police officer, and they were just simply going to magnify the tension underlying that, the way they were in Ferguson, the way they were in Baltimore? But that's the one place in which you could say that if there was a pass-through, because Mueller says we don't then know what happened to the data. Mueller does not then track it through to say, and it went to St. Petersburg. And it was, he doesn't get that far. He basically says he's hit a dead end. He doesn't say it didn't, but he says they just don't know. It's the Minnesota piece is intriguing to me because of that. 
So Minnesota, the pundits didn't think Minnesota was going to be a play, and Minnesota was historically close. Trump was right. The first time I realized that the Trump polling was better than the Democratic polling was when Trump went to Minnesota because it was so unexpected and it clearly didn't look like a faint and he turned out a very large crowd. So it's that coincidence that raises the question, was something else passed? Um, but they had the Democratic playbook. So the Trump campaign had the Democratic playbook. So for practical purposes, if you've got the Democratic playbook and you've got the Democratic targeting information, I mean, down to the voters' addresses that they're trying to target in Florida, um, you know, that's all kinds of inf useful information to have right there. And if the hackers had it, you presume that the trolls had it. I mean, unless you think there's a big communication breakdown in a centralized authoritarian system. Um, <laughs> competing agencies, actually, they might well hate each other, but okay. Yeah, and somebody actually said that to me, they said, you know, I said, you, know, you really think that with Vladimir Putin watching you, they'd say, I hate him so much, I'm not gonna give him something? I don't know. All the way in the back there. Thank you very much. My name is Alex Folks. I work as a election observer for OSCE, but and also because you've mentioned it for the Carter Center in the past as well. Um, I wonder if you can comment on uh, the role of social media sites, particularly the California-based social media sites, and their ongoing policy discussions as regards political advertising, but also political posts. What their responsibility is now because you've talked about what in 2016, um, and whether they have any culpability in um, this action that you've, you've talked about moving forward, uh, and whether they can realistically change their policies to try to defeat this, either in the US or indeed in other countries as well. Yeah, that's a really big question. Um, the, I mean, first, they're doing a much better job looking for identifying and shutting down what they call inauthentic sites. Secondly, they put in place protections to make it far more difficult to purchase advertising with foreign currency or from a foreign location. So the fact that you have to provide a business number, a social security number, and have an address that actually something can be sent to as verification. Uh, so they're creating a feedback loop that geolocates, minimizes the likelihood that you're going to get the advertising purchased, which is blatantly illegal uh, inside our election system with foreign dollars and purchased from abroad. The point at which they had a purchase in rubles is the point at which I think they should have figured out they had something going on. <laughs> uh, third, the, the making available the materials that are being put up on their site in a way that is searchable. And you can certainly critique and say, I'd like it to be more searchable, but it is an improvement because one of the problems with the last election, this, has, this is beyond trolls, it just speaks to the last election, is the capacity to do dark advertising on the web made it impossible for the accountability function of journalism to work. So if I can create an ad and I'm going to send it to Sarah and Sarah gets it and I've got it and nobody else can see it, dark advertising, then the journalistic community, I run factcheck.org, cannot critique it. The opposing candidates can't counteract it. So it becomes the ultimately pernicious micro-targeting. And if their pledges for transparency, that is these things are going to be posted, are actually honored, and now here's the next question. If you get all kinds of different ads, can we, all, can we possibly keep up with them? If we can find the way to keep track of them, um, we will at least be able to do more than we were able to do last time. The tagging underlying the, the Google content, the YouTube content, that identifies the source is a huge improvement for me. 
the to the extent that you know that the source is a government sponsored source which is what they're tagging at least you can factor that into your equation you may say i love rt i love russia today i want the kremlin to talk to me please talk to me some more kremlin at which point when you see that this is russian government talking to you you'll say fine it's got more credibility now of course when i see it it doesn't have more credibility but i want to know that they're the ones who are originating the message now our pbs gets tagged too because it gets partial government support I'd like to see it get so much government support that it's listed as having government support without the qualifications. But it's useful to know that too, if you think that source matters in understanding message. So I think that's a really positive um, move on the part of the platforms. I like the idea that you know, Twitter is not going to put advertising up. Um, I think the solution for this is either raise the aggregation threshold, which I think some in the technical community call raising the floor. Does that mean something to you? raising the floor so that you can't micro-target down to the small unit is a, is a really important change. And I wish that Facebook would just simply say, all right, if we're going to take the damn stuff, pardon my language, that's just US talk, we're gonna, we're gonna set a threshold. You can't micro-target at less than 750,000 uh, grouped unit. That would take some of this, the, the pernicious element of micro-targeting with so much triangulation of all the available data that they have on us being used to individually manipulate us. Um, so I think there are things they are doing that are an improvement, things that they could do that would be better. Um, what I don't want is government to step in and tell them that they should censor candidate speech. I don't want government and I don't want corporations to censor candidate speech. Now, all these things I have no trouble with. I want to change the, the level at which you can micro-target. I want disclosure. I want transparency. But I don't want Facebook to decide whether I see a Donald Trump piece that has Nancy Pelosi clapping or tearing, tearing up a script where she didn't tear up a script. I don't want, I don't want them to do that. I want the opposing candidates to point that out. I want the fact checkers to point that out because the next time they're going to set it up against my candidate or another candidate, or a third candidate, or they're gonna create a line someplace else. I just don't want that capacity. So I wanna protect candidate speech wherever it is. I wanna change capacities to reach some kinds of audience. The same way we say in the United States that you can't show certain kinds of content until later in the evening. So you know, when a candidate ad has certain kinds of content in it, so for example, very explicit references to fetuses with visualizations, um, during the hours the children are likely to be in the audience, you don't buy the, you can't buy the time. You have to buy it into the later hours. So I've, I'm comfortable with those kinds of adjustments. I'm not comfortable with, with anything that gets corporations in the middle of an equation where speech and the audience are at play. I'm Sarah Benayweiser. I'm professor of media and communication here at LSE. Thanks, Kathleen, um, for that incredibly depressing talk. Um, <laughs> um, <clears throat> and I'd like to ask you to kind of give us your thoughts on, on, on maybe some kind of optimistic view, um, uh, especially given what your, the answer that you just gave, this sort of ongoing battle about uh, over information between media companies um, uh, and tech companies and journalists and journalism's, uh, journalism and journalists. And, and the idea that journalism in the United States is also corporate. Yeah, it right, and it's for profit, and it's regardless of what my colleagues and and people say about the BBC in the UK, it is a very different system, yeah. um, and so it's sometimes uh, you know micro targeting of ads is one thing, but 
when you said you want a higher threshold for verif independent verification and for tr uh, trustworthiness uh, tests, and can you tell us how that's going to happen in a corporate media environment, please? Yeah, I mean, I, the, journalists are journalists because they have norms. So the what makes a journalist something that is different from a plumber is a journalist has some organized structure by which the journalists communicate. Sometimes that's, that's something that they've created on their own now in a social media world. But the self-identity of journalism is supposed to be one in which you have some kind of fidelity to what is there. And you don't tell us that something is there when you don't know that. So what is independent verification? A statement of independent verification. It says, we have this hacked content. The Russians got it to us through Julian Assange. Julian Assange opposes Hillary Clinton. Okay, pause. We have not been able to independently verify this content. That's all it says. Now, that doesn't take anything other than they're supposed to have worked very hard to have tried to independently verify it before they get there. And if they have any doubts about it, they really ought not to be pushing it out there. They ought to because the norm of journalism should say we're supposed to be taking discernible reality as best we can capture it and hold people accountable using it in a structure in which there's some journalistic rules about the structures within which we communicate that to audiences. So you know, the, the, we haven't been independently verified. It becomes a way to signal to the audience it may not be what it says to be. It may have been forged. It may have been altered. It may have been decontextualized. It's a way, but more importantly, as importantly, I shouldn't say more importantly, as importantly, it's a signal to the journalist that you've got to be careful about this. They treated this as if they had found it and it was trustworthy. They trusted WikiLeaks to be the equivalent of a journalistic organization. And that was, in my judgment, a very serious normative mistake. And the same thing with not sourcing how something gets to you. Sources have motives. We have a right to assess things in relationship to the possible motives, which is why I like indicating the source of RT and PBS, et cetera, the government-sponsored, because I want to use the source in judging the message. I want to use the fact that Russia has it and Julian Assange has it as a caution to me as the person absorbing it. I watched that Hillary Clinton-Donald Trump exchange on the two, in the two presidential debates and thought, my first response, taking notes and being a person who's ultimately responsible for factcheck.org and having actually read through the hacked content before, thought, I wonder if she's being disingenuous. I have to go back and check. My memory of whether that public-private was in relationship to Lincoln was not exact enough for me to recall that. Now, what does that mean? It means I wanted Martha Raddatz to say something beyond purportedly. She said purportedly. I didn't hear enough of a signal there to say, immediately go and look at that. Meantime, I've processed it. And you know what happens when you lay down a memory trace and then you correct it later. So I want the journalists in those environments to tell us, we haven't independently verified this and to make sure they've kept it in context and to make sure they've sourced it back to Russians etc. In that moment, because when Hillary Clinton says that was about Lincoln, then I'm going to respond by saying it probably was, or at least I want to suspend judgment until I find out. When she says about open trade and open borders, wait a minute, I was talking about Western Hemisphere in the future and about energy. That sure sounds like she's not telling the truth because the reporter is supposed to be the custodian of context. And the reporter hasn't been the custodian of context. The reporter has violated that norm of journalism. And we know that from our debate studies, when the reporter makes a statement and the candidates disagree with the reporter, we know from our debate studies, the audience anchors the truth with the reporter. So if a reporter gets it wrong, 
The structure underlying that is a, a structure that makes us extremely vulnerable as an audience. Well, how can I change that? Put my rules in place and Martha Raddatz and Chris Wallace will give me a context and more signals. And as a result, I'll be less likely to process this as something, gee, Hillary Clinton's really having trouble here. Boy, she really said that? As opposed to my saying, I better check this out. I'm not sure whether she said it or not. The journalist is cueing me that there's a broader context. Thank you, Professor. Um, I'm last year PPE student. Uh, I just want to comment uh, the uh, Professor John Mearsheimer's um, opinion towards uh, the re relation between Russia and uh, United States. Basically, he said that um, United in history, United States constantly intervene other people, uh, other countries' uh, election uh, in Latin America, Middle East, East, Eastern Europe, and he he said that the great power are sensitive uh, is sensitive about their national security yeah like the nato enlargement and um, the eastern world expansion of european union and also the ukraine crisis all of that i mean caused what you say i mean it's i, I think it's just a natural reaction for russia to protect their own interests because uh, uh, apparently i mean a dumb president is much better than a clever one, uh, a one who can, who tells lie and can fool people. I, I just want to comment that. Thank you. Yeah, let, let me go back to the, the first part of your, your question. Uh, the Vladimir Putin essentially says in exchange with, I believe it was Megyn Kelly, uh, that you know the the U.S. You know, intervenes in elections and says it's, it gets to do that because it's in the interest of promoting democracy, and and then makes a statement, the, the essence of which is people who do that ought to expect payback. Now, it's not exactly what he said, but the implication of it is, if you do that, why would you be surprised if someone does it back to you? And doesn't the context of being asked about whether Russia and Russians were the ones who intervened in an election. I mean, Vlad, I'll give you Vladimir Putin's case. Uh, Panama Papers, you know, how, how did they get out there? Where's the United States footprint on that? Makes him, makes the Russian oligarchs look bad. Okay to hack and release stuff, leak and release stuff, get and release stuff. Um, he believes Hillary Clinton gave a signal in order to bring people into the streets when he was running for re-election. Does that sound like meddling in election? So he's got what he believes are grievances. Um, and separately, you're making an assumption uh, that the United States intervenes in elections. We know the United States has intervened in elections in other countries. The United States has done worse than intervene in elections in other countries. So... One of the things we should not be surprised by is if we do that, that someone eventually finds a way to do it back. Um, step back and say, well, look, looking forward, so what can we do about it? Uh, there is an act that is proposed in the, in the Senate, and there's a, a, a version of it that's in the House. It's called the Deter Act. Um, it's capital D, capital E, capital D, Deter Act. And what it says is that if the, the, there's a person, I believe it's the Officer Director of National Intelligence, certifies that some foreign power has intervened in the United States election. The United States throws economic sanctions against that country that are horrific. And they can't be taken back by the incumbent president. And they can't be taken back until there have been two elections with no certified interventions, those two subsequent interventions. There's a stronger, different way of approaching this as well, which is an international treaty in which all countries agree that they will, will value the sovereignty of other nations and consider election interference a violation of sovereignty. Um, and the treaty would then say an attack on one's election is an attack on all, and 
everybody would apply these disabling sanctions. Those are efforts to create an incentive structure to make it very difficult for some leader of a country to say, okay, I think I'm going to authorize this now because the penalties are so great. It's an act of preemption. I support both of those as moves. I think we're in a global environment right now in which it would benefit everyone to stand down. We need to get into a mutually assured destruction model, but do it around elections um, because there is too much of this going on in too many places with too many players with a kind of capacity that potentially undermines structures of governance at a time in which the globe has all sorts of things we need to be acting on and our leaders need to be acting on. We don't need the distraction about worrying about all of this stuff. Thank you. Um, Alex, I used to be a student here. Um, to what extent is it a necessary condition that it was a state, a state actor carrying out these actions versus a potential action of a non-state actor? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I mean, we've dealt with the state actor versus non-state actor at the point at which we began to talk about terrorism by non-state actors. I mean, we, so, you know, the, the problem with anything that's structured around a state in terms of penalty is what happens if you've got non-state actors and what happens if you can't tie the state to the state actors who are acting at, at arm's length. I mean, Vladimir Putin says that at one point, it may have just been some patriotic Russians who may have decided that they wanted to do it. Um, I mean, he, you know, he denies that he personally authorized it question is, do you want to believe a former KGB agent or not? Uh, and how likely is it that it happened without the awareness of the former KGB agent? But nonetheless, if you're going to have a state-based solution, the question is, what do you do with arms length forms of intrusion that are equally problematic? Um, and that's why we have the London School of Economics to figure that out. <laughs> All the way in the back there. Yeah. You talked about the, the efforts to suppress people who are likely to vote against you and support people get out the vote against for, for those who are likely to support you. And obviously that happens in every, uh, every election, but presumably it's much more uh, effective when you've got a turnout of only, or less than 56% that you have in your um, presidential elections. And secondly, is, is there any way of, uh, of, do you think there's any likelihood that we'll actually get to a, a more reasonable turnout than barely over, just over one in two? Yeah, I mean, the there, there are parts of the U.S. system that make it really more difficult to vote than is necessary to ensure the protection of the ballot. Um, I, you know, we live in Pennsylvania. I am very happy to live in Pennsylvania. Um, it's extremely difficult to cast an early vote in Pennsylvania. They just, they just set in place a process that's finally going to make it easier. Um, we had, we had a registration deadline. We still do have a registration deadline. Now you, now you can mail ballot early with less barriers. Um, up to this last change that was just put in place in the last month and a half to two months. Um, I, I travel a lot. It was extremely difficult for me to make sure that I was home in order to vote on election day because it was difficult to get the justification in place to be able to cast an early ballot. Um, so the, you know, the, the question becomes, do we really have to have registration deadlines months before you vote in some of these states when other states have same-day registration? I mean, can't we, with all of our digital capacity, have an ID system, which is now going to be upgraded so that we are able to get through TSA more readily, that verifies that we, if we're, if we're good enough to be us to go through TSA and get on an airplane, can't we have a thing that's good enough to say we're us in order to vote? And as a result, we can take the barrier away. Um, within the last 20 years, we finally moved to when you get your driver's licenses, and in most places, you just can check a box and you get registered to vote. 
which is helpful in states like mine, where actually there's a barrier to getting registered to vote. So some of these things are just needless barriers. We also have active voter suppression efforts, you know, the attempts to try to keep people off the, 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 the ballots in some states. So if you clean the voter rolls, clean in, in quotation marks, I say, if you haven't voted in the last two elections, you have to re-register. Um, you're going to knock a whole lot of people off the voting rolls who are now going to, you can predict which party is going to be advantaged by that. If you decide that felons who have been convicted and paid their debt to society get to vote, but they have to pay all of the debts that they have incurred as part of the criminal justice system before they get to exercise that ballot. One of our courts has just held, it's going to be appealed, that no, you can't do that because that discriminates against the poor convicted felons who have paid their debt to society against the rich convicted felons, of which we have an increasing number. So the, the, we've got structural problems we've got to address in the United States that if we address would raise turnout presumably. We also have a whole lot of people in the United States who don't see a big difference between our political parties. And as a result, don't see any reason why casting a vote for one is going to make their life any different than casting a vote for another. And that's a problem with our political parties. I mean, we've had a Green Party trying to emerge in the United States for a very long time unsuccessfully. We've got the beginnings of what could be a strong libertarian party trying to emerge. We've got structural barriers up against the emergence of those alternative parties. Right now, you can't get into candidate debates because debates are controlled by parties. They get all this media access. The Greens don't get in. The libertarians don't get in. So they don't get the chance to get the voice to get into the process to make their reforms. I mean, some of the, the big changes in the United States historically came out of our third parties. William Jennings Bryan accounted for some of the major changes we made at the turn of the last century. You know, there was elected president. I mean, there, there, there are surge, surging movements inside the country that we managed to, to tamp down in ways that some other countries don't. And if we had more of those options, I think we would have more people incentivized to vote. So when people say there's really no difference between the candidates, and as a result, why should I vote? I'm going to be disadvantaged no matter who is elected. To the extent that people can legitimately perceive that that's correct, why should they vote? And, and if we have alternatives that would mobilize them to vote, we should have the structures that let, let them emerge so that those votes can be cast. That isn't an answer that says, here's how we're going to get to it. It says, here are all the barriers that we have to take down before we will. But we could get our voting rate up if we pull those barriers down. We have time for one more question. You've had your hand up for a while. I'll take you right there. <clears throat> it's really two questions. Uh, <laughs> uh, Sure. Voting machines. Um, we have a national lottery in, in this country where you can win money. And they were going to have a, a computer like the Ernie computer used by premium bonds. But uh, they did the research and they found that a lot of people wouldn't have confidence in it. So they actually went for tangible for physical objects, uh, balls in a, in, a, in a perspex case that you could see bouncing about the place. Uh, and surely one of the ways that you could uh, deal with trolls uh, sowing uh, lack of confidence in the process would be to have to go back to paper polls. Uh, secondly, um, Boris Johnson in this country has suppressed publication of an official government report into Russian interference in British elections uh, and, and also the Brexit referendum. Uh, it's probably outside of your domain, but. Do you have any information or views on what that is liable to um, to reveal? So here's Thank an you. opportunity for you to get into some real trouble before you leave. Yeah. 
like most people in the United States, I am woefully ignorant about what goes on inside other people's political systems. And it would be foolish as a result to try <laughs> to answer your question, <laughs> except to say that I suspect that the Russians are not simply learning as they mm. come into one system about how to work that system, but as they move across the globe, intervening in system after system, they're carrying their knowledge of how humans, regardless of nationality, respond to stimuli into the new environment. And I think if the United States and its scholars had been focusing more intensely on what was happening in other countries before our election, we would have been better aware and more clearly in, in control of a research stream that would have been able to understand what was happening in our own. Anytime there's information that is generated any place else before our 2020 election, we should be aware of it. Anybody's kind of and correlatively, what was done in the United States, people should be aware elsewhere because humans are humans. And the capacities to engender fear, sow division, play on hatred, um, activate misogyny, are, are, those are human. And I believe that when you, when you have a mass experiment going globally and you get to move country by country, what you get to do is refine your understanding of how you particularize those human tendencies for maximum effect inside different kinds of structures. And the disadvantage then comes to those who are within the structures who aren't conducting comparable kinds of experiments because all their research just comes out of their own context, in the case of the United States, only every four years. Well, this is all, it's very sobering, but I take some comfort and solace in knowing that you're on the case. You really are on the case. Thank you so much for coming. Professor Kathleen Jemison is Elizabeth Ware Packard Professor at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania and Director of the Annenberg Public Policy Center. So that's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Thanks so much to Professor Kathleen Jemison for joining me in this episode. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson and Michaela Herman. The Ballpark Podcast is supported by the Phelan family. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. Check out this feed for a one-to-one -one interview with Professor Jemison where she talks about Russian election interference, Donald Trump, and the 2020 presidential election. To listen to our other event recordings and episodes of our regular podcast, The Ballpark, just enter LSE US Center into your search engine of choice. We'd love to hear what you think about the US Center and our events. Email us any feedback at uscenter at lse.ac.uk, or you can send us a tweet at lse underscore US. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or of the London School of Economics. Thanks for listening.